Well, hello and welcome to Church Online again. How about I begin with prayer? Our loving Heavenly Father, we praise you for your power and your mercy. They are beyond compare. We also wish to ask for your power and your mercy as we come to this complex passage. And we pray for your mercy because we do not deserve for you to speak to us. Yet we pray you treat us better than we deserve and not leave us in the dark as to the message of Hebrews chapter 7. We ask also for your power, Lord, our power to sharpen our minds, enlighten our hearts and strengthen our wills. And it's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've been watching the news over the past week, you'll have no doubt been horrified by the disaster that is still unfolding in Afghanistan. Uh, one news report said the US's decision to pull out the troops of Afghanistan is the worst foreign, uh, piece of foreign policy ever. The US military said uh, it would take up to three months for the Taliban to retake Afghanistan. It took them just over three days. And if past actions have any bearing on future behaviour, we can expect stories of rape and oppression of women, as well as execution of collaborators and infidels to start coming in. Right? It is a humanitarian disaster. Now, the reason for this disaster, uh, or the reasons, I should say, are very complex. All right? There's no one single reason. All right? The Afghan government is notoriously corrupt. There's a problem. The Afghan soldiers haven't been paid in months, so we're led to believe. Uh, the Afghan military was also trained to depend on US air support, which has just been ripped out from under them. So it is a complicated situation. But the main reason this thing happened is because the US government no longer has the will to remain in Afghanistan. Uh, they have the power to hold the Taliban at bay. They've been doing it for the last 20 years with minimal soldiers of late. They simply no longer have the will. But here's the thing, the outcry around the world at the moment uh, that so many people have shown, including many US citizens, uh, show that many people have the will, the mercy, uh, to want to help the Afghan people. We just lack the power to do so. Right? Only a significant military force has the power to deal with 75,000 Taliban fighters. Uh, you see, what the Afghan people need is someone with the power and the mercy to help them. And this is what the author is telling uh, the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 7, our passage for today. He is saying that only Jesus has both the power and the mercy to help us with our greatest needs in life, in particular, our greatest need. Now, this is yet another very complicated passage, uh, but there are only two things you need to know to understand Hebrews. All right? The first is the situation, and the second is the message. So the situation is, this letter was written to Jewish Christians, Hebrew Christians, who were under enormous pressure through some very serious persecution, as we're going to see in a couple of weeks, uh, to leave this, this new religion called Christianity and return to Judaism. So that's the situation. Number two is the message. And the message of the author is simple. Given that Jesus is incredibly glorious, stick with Jesus. Right? Make every effort. Pay the most careful attention. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And our passage this week is no exception to this. So in Hebrews chapter 7, the author asks the readers, why would you go back uh, 
to your old religion, your old religious ways, given that they lack what it takes to actually help you. Right? Only Jesus has both the power and the mercy to help people. He has power as the king and he has mercy as the high priest, meaning he is significantly greater than any other religious figure or system you might be tempted to turn to for help. And look, I've got three points today to help us see this. So the author begins by taking us back to this, this enigmatic Old Testament figure known as Melchizedek. that We were introduced to him about two weeks ago. And so our first point is very simple. Who is Melchizedek? Verses 1 to 10. The author then tells us why he's talking about Melchizedek in verses 11 to 24, which is to show uh, that a priest in the order of Melchizedek is superior to the priests of Judaism. So I've titled our second point, Why is Jesus like Melchizedek? We're then going to conclude with our application, which I've titled, How Jesus Helps Us. And that's verses 25 to 28. Uh, but friends, my, my prayer for today is that we will see that Jesus has both the power and the mercy to help us with our biggest problem in life. So let's dive in. And our passage begins with the author returning to the topic of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, he was a minor character in the Old Testament. So minor, you could have uh, mistaken him for an extra, other than he did have a small speaking role. So he shows up for just three verses in, in the book of Genesis, and then uh, he disappears for over a thousand years before he pops up again in a reference uh, to Psalm 110, and then he disappears for another 500 years before he pops up in the letter to the Hebrews. And the author stopped the car in last week's passage, all right, to tell his passengers, hey, this Melchizedek stuff, it's not baby food. This is grown-up stuff here. Right? So the point of Hebrews chapter 6 is to tell the readers to put your thinking caps on for our passage today, for Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, but here's the thing, this is not merely an intellectual exercise. This stuff is dynamite if we can interpret it properly. So our passage begins, Hebrews 7, verse 1. Uh, this Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. Now, most scholars believe that Salem was an ancient name for Jerusalem. Okay, uh, So Salem sounds like the Jewish greeting Shalom, which means peace. So in calling Melchizedek king of Salem, he's basically, uh, therefore, the king of peace. Furthermore, the name Melchizedek comes from two Hebrew words, Melech, meaning king, and Sadik, meaning righteousness. So his name literally means king of righteousness, verse 2. And herein lies the, the uniqueness of Melchizedek. No one else in the Old Testament is both a king and a priest. In fact, you are forbidden from being both under the Old Testament law. Uh, you may recall in 1 Samuel 13, now this is, this is less than two chapters into Saul's kingship. In 1 Samuel 13, he decides to take on the priestly role of offering sacrifices to God. And if you recall, he is fired for doing so on the spot. 
there's another uh, another instance in 2 Chronicles 26. It's, it's, it's almost a comical story of uh, when what God himself does to King Uzziah when he very arrogantly burns incense in the temple. And uh, the priests go in to confront him about this very courageously, we're told. And we read this. This is 2 Chronicles 26.20. When Azariah, the, the chief priest, and all the other priests looked at him, they saw that he had leprosy on his forehead. So they hurried him out. Indeed, he himself was eager to leave because the Lord had inflicted him. And so the first thing we learn about Melchizedek is he was both a king and a priest. And that makes him utterly unique. The author then says in verse 3, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So the author is using poetic license here uh, in order to say that because we're not told of Mel Melchizedek's birth, nor are we told of his death, he, it's like he's, he, he has no time frame. It's almost like he never stopped being a priest. The third thing we learn about Melchizedek is he was greater than even the father of the Hebrew nation, greater than Abraham. Now, why is this? Well, number one, he blesses Abraham. Uh, as the author says in verse 7, and without doubt the lesser is blessed by the greater. All right, so he's blessing Abraham. But on top of that, Abraham gives him a tenth of his plunder from war. So the author says, uh, the Old Testament law commanded that the Israelites give a tithe, give a tenth of their income to the Levites. Uh, the reason being so that the Levites could dedicate themselves full time to their priestly roles rather than having to, to work their own land. Uh, it's the same with offertory today, okay? So your offertory to our church uh, pays for your minister's wages so that they can work full time as ministers for you. But here's the thing, Melchizedek wasn't Jewish. There's, there's no command for Abraham to give a tithe to Melchizedek, yet the father of the Jews chose to tithe to him. And then fourthly, we're told that because Levi was a descendant of Abraham, he was an inheritor of Abraham, wasn't he? Uh, the author again uses a bit of poetic license to say that Levi, who was supposed to collect the tithe, actually paid the tithe to Melchizedek uh, through Abraham. So what is he saying? He's giving us four things here to show the reader how amazing Melchizedek is. All right? He is a priest king. He is a priest forever. He is greater than Abraham. And even the priest Levi paid him a tithe. So that's who Melchizedek is. Uh, in verse 11, the author then finally outlines why he's telling us all this. Read it with me. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. Now, to understand what he's going here, we need to remember the situation, okay? The situation is the Hebrews were being dragged back to Judaism, dragged back to the temple, dragged back to the Aaronic priesthood. And the author is saying, why would you go back to that imperfect system? And we know it's an imperfect system because the Old Testament told us it's imperfect. 
All right, so Psalm 110, and that's the psalm he's been quoting ever since chapter 5. Psalm 110 was written at a time when the Levitical priesthood was in its heyday. Yet King David, speaking through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says another priesthood is needed, one in the order of Melchizedek. Now, you only replace something, right, when the first thing isn't working properly, right? Uh, it's like, uh, I don't know if you remember Tim the Toolman Taylor from that show Home Improvement, okay, when his dishwasher couldn't clean his plates properly, he decided to rebuild it using a Finley two-stage five-horsepower Blastmaster compressor uh, with an air delivery system of 18 cubic feet per minute. Now, he ended up blowing up his dishwasher, uh, but the, the author's point here is why would you go back to a system that God himself said needs replacing? And that replacement, according to Psalm 110, is the Messiah, the King. Right, let me read to you Psalm 110 verse 2. He says, The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. This psalm is talking about a king, all right? uh, a descendant of David. And David, as we know, came from the tribe of Judah. Now that's what Hebrews 7 verse 14 is on about. Now, here's the thing. Jesus himself tells us that Psalm 110 is about him. He does that in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. So that's exhibit A. But our author adds to that exhibit B and exhibit C in Hebrews chapter 7 to show that Psalm 110 is about Jesus. So exhibit B is seen in verse 15. Uh, where is it? And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Now, what's he saying there? He's saying the Old Testament regulation was that when the high priest died, his eldest son would succeed him. So every single Levitical high priest was a direct descendant from Aaron. The priest in the order of Melchizedek, though, according to Psalm 110, was not a descendant of Aaron. He was a descendant of Judah. So he couldn't be appointed priest according to the regulation. Instead, Jesus became high priest on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Now, what's that talking about? It's talking about Jesus' resurrection. See, when Jesus rose from the dead on that very first Easter Sunday, he rose to never die again. And he's the only one who's ever done that. I mean, sure, Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, but Lazarus died again. Jesus is the only person to be raised to life, never to die again. And what that means is, Jesus is the only person who can actually be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Why? Because he is the only one who can be a priest forever. Have a look at verse 17. For it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So... <clears throat> Exhibit A, that Jesus is like Melchizedek, is Jesus' own words in Matthew 22, Mark 12, and Luke 20. Exhibit B is that Jesus is the only one who can be a priest forever. Exhibit C is in verse 20. Have a read with me. And it was not without an oath. 
Others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So, every single high priest since Aaron became a priest because A, they were born into the right family, and B, their father had just died. But the issue with that is, they too will die one day as well. But according to Psalm 110, God has sealed with an oath the fact that Jesus will be high priest forever. And that oath, according to the author, as he says there in verse 22, is, is, is like our warranty that comes with our new TV. Right? It is our guarantee that Jesus has a permanent priesthood. Verse 24, in the order of Melchizedek. final question is so what right sure Melchizedek is great verses 1 to 10 and sure Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek verses 11 to 24 this still leaves us with one big question how does this all help me and the answer is found in a little phrase that pops up in verse 19 but is then repeated in verse 25 just so we don't miss it so read verse 25 with me Therefore, he is able to save completely those, this is the phrase, who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for us. See, what he's saying is, Jesus has the power and the will, the mercy, to help those who come to God with our biggest problem. And what is our biggest problem? Simple. What are we going to do with our sin? See, when we stand before our maker and he asks, why should I let you into heaven? What are we going to say? This is our biggest problem in life and every single belief system or religious system on the planet is trying to answer that one big question. So uh, take atheists, for example. They deal with this question by saying there is no God. Now, the faith required to believe there is no God is significantly greater than the faith Christians need to believe in a God. Why? Because the evidence is firmly stacked in the, uh, in the favour of there actually being an intelligent designer behind this grand universe. But you can understand why they want to argue that there's no God. It fixes our biggest problem. Right? If there's no God, fingers crossed, uh, then we don't need to worry about our sin. Most people, however, do not have such grand faith. So what the majority of us do is we look to help, uh, look for help in this grandest of problems. And the message of Hebrews chapter 7 is, if you look for help anywhere other than in Jesus, you're getting second-rate help. It's like paying top dollar for like a, a first-year law student to help with, who has no trial experience to help with your murder trial when the greatest criminal lawyer on the planet has offered to do it for you for free. Now, take some of the world religions, for example. So take Allah, for example, or, or, or the Hindu gods. They are presented as very powerful gods. But they're not so big on mercy. You see, Muslims and Hindus have to hope that they've done enough to please those gods so that they'll be led into paradise. Or then there's Buddha 
or, or the Catholic uh, saints. Now, Buddha is presented as a very gentle, very caring leader. He's showing us the middle path. All right? These Catholic saints, they're also presented as being very willing to intercede for praying saints. But these helpers have no authority, no power to actually help. Uh, the original recipients, they were looking in a slightly different way. They were looking for salvation in the Levitical priesthood. That was their defence attorney, okay? And the author says that is second-rate law, uh, uh, like, help as well. Verse 27 says, uh, The high priest has to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. So the Levitical high priest, he, he, he may have had mercy... He may, he may have wanted to help them, but he didn't have the power because he's just as sinful as the rest of humanity. Right? At absolute best, the Levitical priest could only say, I hope my sacrifices were accepted. Yet even Christians look for salvation in wrong places. There are some within the, uh, the Christian tradition who think that having the Lord's Supper is somehow effectual for salvation, somehow contributes to our salvation. And as such, the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, as it's sometimes called, must be administered by a priest. And what is the priest doing? They are re-sacrificing the actual body and blood of Jesus uh, in a way that they're, they're interceding with, the, with, uh, with God for the people. Now, there are two big problems with this. Number one is it is utterly blaspheming to the name of Jesus. It is declaring that Jesus' death on the cross was not sufficient, not enough. But the second problem is that, again, at absolute best, people who look to priests or going to church or confession or taking the Eucharist or doing penance can only ever hope they've done enough. They lack power. Others prefer to represent themselves in court and rely on their own good works or moral living to get them over the line. And look, we all do this way more than we care to admit. Okay? Why is it that some of us are so crushed by criticism or so devastated when we make a mistake? Why is it that we work so hard to deny or hide our sin or we're so quick to judge others or cancel others? Right? What are we doing? We're being our own defence attorney. We're saying to God, oh, look, you have to let me into heaven, God, because I'm way better than all those other people. But again, like those ancient priests, like modern-day priests, we too lack the power to save completely. At absolute best, the best argument we can come up with is, I hope I've done enough, Lord. I hope there's more black than red in my ledger. Friends, only Jesus has both the power and the mercy to save you and me completely. Verse 25. The reason being is he intercedes for us with a watertight legal argument. So as our, as our forever high priest, as our high priest in the order of Melchizedek, Jesus wants to intercede with the Father for us. He has the mercy to intercede for us. Yet as King, as Messiah, he has the power to do so perfectly with a watertight legal argument. And what is that watertight legal argument? 
It says this, Jesus stands there and he says to the father, you cannot punish this child of mine for their sins, father. Why? Because as a perfectly righteous and just judge, you cannot exact two punishments for the one crime. And my sacrifice of myself, verse 27, has paid the penalty for their sins. And friends, this is why Melchizedek is so important. For only a priest in the order of Melchizedek, only a forever priest, king, has both the power and the mercy to help us with our greatest need. Only Jesus can intercede for us with a watertight legal argument with the Father. So if you haven't turned to Jesus yet, then you are trusting your biggest problem in life to a second-rate helper. A helper who is unable to win the case for you. If you are a Christian, then stick with Jesus. For only Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them.